All right. Well, I'm excited for this word this morning. I don't know how I can follow up that VBS uh, video, but we'll do our best. Uh, We are continuing in the book of Acts this morning. And the book of Acts, if you're not familiar with it, is all about how the Holy Spirit spread the gospel through the early church. After Jesus commanded them to spread the gospel and he ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit took over. And we're watching and learning what has happened during that time. Uh, And as we get to the chapter 2 this morning, the back half of chapter 2, I kind of have one goal for our message today. I want to kind of answer the question, what makes someone a Christian? Because maybe you sit here today or you watch online and you don't know. You you don't know how to put that to words. You're not 100% sure yourself. Or because you grow up being a Christian, you've always been in the church, so it's just kind of always been there, but you've never really thought about it. I mean, if someone were to ask you, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do you get there? Would you know what to tell them? Would you know how to respond? So it's my hope this morning that we will all walk away either in a brand new way or as a refresher, a little compendium on how someone becomes a Christian, what it means to be a Christian. So as we come to our passage this morning, last week, you, if you were, you were listening in, you'll remember that the Holy Spirit, God just had descended on a bunch of his followers in the upper room, and they started speaking all of these languages, these foreign languages that they had no business knowing. And the idea was, you know, the only way the gospel is going to get spread to the entire ends of the earth is if it gets sent out in the languages of all the ends of the earth. And so that's what was happening here. Now, why some were amazed by this, because they didn't expect these kind of people to start speaking in foreign languages, you know, it, it would be like kind of like, anybody seen Duck Dynasty? Imagine watching a show of Duck Dynasty, these southern just kind of hillbillies, and they started speaking like, you know, just Mandarin Chinese or French. You'd be a little surprised, right? This is kind of like what would happen here. So they're amazed by this. Now, other people are just sitting there going, man, these guys are just drunk. They are just loaded. And so Peter, the apostle, he stands up to kind of explain what's going on. We'll pick it up in verse 14. It says, but Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. He said, men of Judea, And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's it's the only the third hour of the day, which is about 9 a.m. In verse 16, a man then yelled out from the crowd, but it's five o'clock somewhere. Then in verse 17, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, that's not in there. (laughs) I think I just committed heresy, but I just... I wanted to see if you guys would pick it up on your own, but you guys are sharp. Now, I'm not going to actually read what Peter said in these next several verses, but what he goes on to do is quote the Old Testament prophet named Joel. And Joel talks about how God would pour his spirit all over mankind. You can read it on your own later. And and this was the point that Peter was making, like, look, these guys aren't drunk. What you are seeing is a fulfillment of this prophecy that God's spirit is being poured out on all mankind. Then he goes on in verse 22. Big big passage we're going to read here. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. 
This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, King David, the Old Testament, says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, after quoting David, Peter goes on to say, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and is in his tomb with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, speaking of Jesus, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. And he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are now seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Finally, in verse 36, he says, let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Excuse me as I pause for water for a moment. So what we have right here is the very first sermon not preached by Jesus. The very first one right here. And what is Peter doing here as he stands up and gives this explanation? He's building a case for Jesus Christ as the Messiah. You see, the Jews believed in a Messiah. They believed in a Savior that was coming. And Peter wanted them to understand that that Savior was Jesus. He said, look, Jesus did miracles like it was prophesied. He was resurrected like it was prophesied. He was exalted like it was prophesied. He even goes on to quote King David in the Psalms who wrote about the coming Messiah. Not to mention other Old Testament references who mentioned that someone from the line of David, one of David's kin, would establish a throne that would last forever. Peter's saying, look, look, King David's dead. We can all go visit his grave together. We can lay down flowers. So it can't be him. He said, people, pay attention. The Savior you're all waiting for He's here. He came. He died. He rose again. This is why he says in Acts 2.36, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter's saying, look around. It adds up. The math works. This makes sense. And then he goes on and he gives firsthand testimony. He says, look, we all saw Jesus after he was dead. This speech takes place about two months, two months after he died. And they're in the very city where he died. So Peter's like, look, if Jesus was still in the tomb, we could all go visit him. But he ain't there. 
We also read when Paul talks about how Jesus showed himself to 500 of his followers after he rose again. People said, man, people hallucinated Jesus. 500 people would have to hallucinated for Jesus not to have really shown up. And people say, well, they could be making all this up for their benefit. But as you go on to read, being a Christian, you don't benefit anything. It makes life harder. You have to be nicer to people you don't like. You have to be forgiving. It doesn't usher you into a life of power or money. If anything, it tells you to give away power and to give away money. In fact, I think every one of the apostles would end up dying a martyr's death, but proclaiming to the end, he's alive, we saw him. He said, if that's not enough, look, you guys just saw a bunch of Galilean hillbillies, a bunch of hicks, speak languages they couldn't possibly know. He said, this is exactly what Jesus promised to us. Some of you have heard it. He promised to send his spirit. You can't send something if you're dead. He said, Jesus is alive. He's building a case. He's appealing to their brains. He wants Jesus to make sense to them. See, for someone to be a Christian, it has to make sense to them. It has to make sense in their mind. As C.S. Lewis said, Jesus cannot enter my heart until he first enters my head. The message of Jesus, it makes sense to a Christian. They look at it and they look at the evidence for it. It gives evidence to examine that it rises and falls on. As, as Paul says, if Christ wasn't crucified, then all we, tell, we teach is nothing. And that separates it out from a lot of the spirituality today. I read these reports. It says we're spiritual more than ever. And you talk to people and I would let you know, Believe in God, oh, yes, I'm spiritual. And you're like, well, tell me about that. Well, I just feel like I'm part of, connected to something bigger. Well, what is it? I don't know. Well, how does it work? I'm not sure. Well, how do you know it's true? I just feel it. And obviously, this is a popular thing to do. Why? Because when you can be spiritual, you have nobody to answer to. You pick and choose what you want to apply into your life. And that's really what is at the core about it because the same people that I will talk to who say, and I don't believe in Jesus or the evidence of Christ, they're the same people that are, are willing to go look at horoscopes or moon rocks or what have you to give their lives definition and meaning. Peter says, the evidence for Christ is clear. It makes sense, people. Can you not see it? So as they pondered what he was saying, I want you to see how the listeners responded. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. What a powerful phrase. Cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? As if a knife entered their chest, they were cut to the heart. Now, what should this reaction teach us about Christianity? I think one of the biggest things that it teaches us is Christianity is not a self-improvement program. It's not something you start doing so you can just be a better you. It's not something you take up like a diet or an exercise program. You don't take up Christianity. Christianity takes up you. 
When you become a Christian, you sense a power, the power of God that's taking you up, that sweeps you up. You're not somebody who's just saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I, I, I want to be, become just better. There's a power that takes a hold of your life. The Holy Spirit, he reveals to you a, your desperate need for God. It's like having a veil over your eyes lifted. I could not see, but now I do. You cut to the heart. Now, what veil is lifted? Well, a couple that come to my mind. First, the veil of understanding who Jesus is. You see, a Christian realizes who Jesus is. A Christian realizes who Jesus is. And that is Savior and King. And this is what happened here. They realized, these Jews, that they had the wrong view of Christ. You see, in Jesus' days, there were a lot of theories about him. Some wanted to be a prophet, call people back to religion. Some wanted him to be like a political messiah. That's what his, his disciples wanted. Deliver us from Roman oppression. Others wrote him off as just a nutcase or fake, magician. But these people here, listening to the words of people, they were realizing that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. He really was the son of God. A Christian realizes who Jesus is. And this awakening, this veil lifting, it led to a cutting to the heart. Let me show you what I mean. In Acts 2.23, Peter says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He said, look, you all killed Jesus. Now this doesn't make sense. Because... This was like two months after the death of Jesus and they were going through the festivals of Pentecost and the feasts and we talked about this last week. So there would have been a lot of people listening to him that were not even around when Jesus died. So what's Peter saying? Why would they be cut to the heart by this accusation? Jesus is, uh, Peter is saying in, in, in essence, every one of you are the reason that Jesus came to die. You're the reason. Like them, when you are cut to the heart, you realize that you have ignored God in your life. You have lived in such a way to tell God, hey, I know better. I don't need you. I don't need your rules. I don't need your teachings. You realize that you're not just a person who makes mistakes or get things wrong. You are literally a person who has committed treason against the Most High. That's what we call it, treason. In our country, when you ignore your authority, when you work against them, it is an act of treason. In the same way, when we live lives without God, it's an act of treason. In our ignoring him, not only do we not live for him, but our lives influences other people not to live for him. This is why you're cut to the heart. And this, I think, is the essence of how you become a Christian. You're cut to the heart. 
It's when your sin cuts you to the heart. When your sin is not abstract, but it becomes personal for you. Uh, The example of of Peter is, is a good one. You remember Peter, disciple of Jesus. Peter's all like, man, God, Jesus, I love you. I'm gonna follow you to death. I got your back, bro. Blood brothers for life. Jesus looks at to him. He says, listen, before the, 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 what is it? What animal is it? The rooster crows, right? Three times, you're going to do what? Anybody else know? You're going to deny me. You will deny me. Peter's like, no way. No way. So what happens? Jesus gets arrested. Peter does what? He goes, nah. And people are like, hey, hey, you're a buddy of Jesus. Nope, don't know him. Don't know him. Happens two more times. He was afraid. He's trying to save his skin. He's lying. And I'm sure he felt guilty. He knows what he's doing is wrong. We all know when we're doing something wrong, we feel that guilt. He's breaking the Ten Commandments. He's doing wrong. He was ashamed. He would have felt guilt. But it wasn't until Luke 22 when he was cut to the heart. It says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Listen to this, read this. And he went out, speaking of Peter, and wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. This is someone who is cut to the heart. Too many of us, we see our, our sin and our relationship with God in this abstract way. We don't think of it personally. But when you are cut to the heart by the gospel, you realize you have turned your back on your creator. You're stuck with this painful question of how could I ignore this God who has loved me and created me and gave me life and oxygen in my lungs? How can I ignore him? How could I have spent this entire time pretending he's not there? I remember I had this moment when I was 17. Got saved when I was 16, didn't hit till I was 17, and I was on the steps like these, except there was a lot more of them. And it was at a youth service, and I'm just pounding, pounding the stairs because I had confessed to follow God, but my life wasn't living that way. I wasn't reading his word. I was praying. I was doing whatever I wanted to do. And that night, I was convicted. I was cut to the heart. I was in pain. Have you ever had that experience with God? Where you were cut to the heart by your sin. A Christian is cut to the heart. If we're never cut to the heart, then we're just doing religion. We're just doing church. We're just trying to be a better person. A Christian is cut to the heart. They understand how lost they are. They understand their inability to follow God. Now, some people get there. They get to this place, they realize they failed. But a Christian, a Christian doesn't stay there. And this is big because far too many people, and and I I don't know what it is, but I've, I've met more and more of them since I met to the Northeast, they stay in this place of failing God. They stay there. But a Christian, a Christian accepts the grace of God. A Christian accepts the grace of God. Far too many of us, and even I can make the mistake of doing this when I'm not putting time in his word, is we see our relationship with God about us. 
We look at our own lives and we think, okay, either we're good enough for God right now or we're not good enough for God. But a Christian understands that their relationship with God is not about them. It's about Jesus. This is why it says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is an eternal life in who? Christ Jesus, our Lord. In other words, it's only because of Jesus that you can be saved. It's all about Jesus. And this is what Peter's doing when he quotes Psalms and Joel in this sermon. He's saying, everything points to Jesus. In fact, we get confused reading the Bible. It can be hard sometimes. But if you take this entire premise that the entire Bible from start to finish is really about Christ being sent for mankind, it can clear up so much. And this is important to understand when reading the Bible, because when we read the Bible, there's a lot of things in there, a lot of things that are good, a lot of things that are weird, tells us what, how to be better people, gives us lots of great advice, but we can often miss the forest for the trees. You can read all these things and say, okay, here are the things I need to do and say, okay, this is what I do. So the Bible's about me. It's teaching me how to be just better, right? And we can get in this life, well, this is what I need to do, A, B, C, D, 3, 4, 5, 6, to get saved, in order to get my, my prayers answered. No. Because if you sit there and think about it, nobody could possibly do everything that's written in the Bible. Nobody. Literally, I could be out of bed for about 30 seconds before I break one of the Bible's rules. I remember as a kid, I would always say, I'm going to have a perfect day for Jesus. This was my thing. I was like 12. I'm going to have a perfect day. Fails not. By the time breakfast was over, boom, I'd already blown it. I don't think, in fact, I ever got past breakfast. Nobody can do everything the Bible says you ought to do. And it doesn't mean the Bible's not for us. The Bible is for us, but it's not about us. The Bible is about God doing what we could never do through Christ. And this brings clarity, like I said. Like, when you ever go read in the Old Testament and you read, like the Jews, that they would, to atone for their sins, they would bring animals. They would bring animals and offer a sacrifice. It's weird. When you put it in the context of our everyday life, it's just weird. Let's just admit it. It's weird. I mean, if you don't think it's weird, you have not read Leviticus. You will get freaked out and there. You will read things like not boiling a goat in its mother's milk. You will read all kinds of weird stuff. And it all has purpose and context. But going back to the sacrifices, when you understand that God requiring animals to be sacrificed in the Old Testament was laying a foundation and understanding that Christ would be sacrificed for all of mankind, it starts to make sense. All of it points to Christ one way or the other. You see, it's all connected. And when you realize and, and you look at that the Bible is about Jesus, it sits in there. This like, man, I can't earn salvation. I cannot be good enough for God. Every day of my life, I am going to mess it up. I am going to fail God. But I don't have to. Jesus came and he paid the price for my sin. He did the work. It's a gift. And that's what ushers in joy. That's what takes out the guilt and it brings in the joy. Like, oh, and that's why you see people raising their hands or some people closing their eyes and singing because they're like so thankful to Jesus. Because that's when you're really thankful for something, when you know you couldn't save yourself, when you know you couldn't do it yourself. That's when the appreciation comes in. 
And once you get that idea of grace, you, you don't just read the Bible anymore as a list of things you've got to do to be a good person. You read the story of the Bible as, man, what God did for me and how he wants me to respond. But no matter whether I respond or don't respond, it doesn't take away what he's done. A Christian accepts the grace of God. You guys with me this morning? So what does somebody do that's in this place? They realize who Jesus is. They realize their sin. They realize the grace that saved them. Peter says to him in verse 38, he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want you to focus on that word, repent. You cannot be a Christian without repenting. And this is huge because we have far too many people in this world who pray this prayer. We're taught to pray a prayer. We know it, the sinner's prayer, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I want to make you Lord and Savior of my life, blah, 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 blah. And, and listen, prayer is a great way to start a relationship with God. But I know people who prayed this prayer 30 years ago and they're like, high five, I'm good with God. But no, a Christian does not just say a prayer. A Christian repents. And repent in the Greek means to change. It means to change the way you're living your life. It means to head in a new direction. And it's not just a resolve to do a better. It is literally adopting a new attitude about God. Not because you have to, but because you want to. See, when someone shows you love and they sacrifice for you, it changes your heart towards them. You know, I got married to my wife, Maria, a good 17, almost 18 years ago. And about, uh, you know, uh, oh my gosh, our anniversary is coming up. Which I did not forget. I got it, honey. Let me make a note really quick. Oh, uh, no, kidding. But if someone were to walk up to me and say, you know, Jeff, Maria loves you. She loves you so much. She's so loyal and faithful to you. I, I bet you could cheat on her and she would still stick by your side. She would forgive you. No. Her faithful love to me makes me want to be more faithful to her. But this is how we treat God. We're like, God saved me and he loves me. And then we go just living our lives the entire way that we want to live. And then we come together a couple times a year on Christmas and Easter. And we're like, Jesus, I praise you. And then we go back to living our lives. That's not repentance. Repentance says God died for me. He sacrificed for me. I want to honor him with my life because he is the only one who is worthy. That is repentance. I mean, look at Peter. He fails Jesus. Three times he says, I don't know him. I don't know him. Jesus forgives him. And then in this next breath, he commissions Peter to go spread the gospel. Well, I guarantee you the compassion of Jesus is what partially driving Peter. This is where God's grace should lead you. It's not about just becoming a better person. It is about understanding that Jesus is not just your Savior. He's also Lord of your life. He's in charge. And you surrender everything to him. And this is something that you've done or you have not done. There's no in-between here. Too many of us, we compare ourselves to other people. And other people worse than us, we feel better than ours. We feel better. We go to church a little bit more often, we feel better. No, God does not grade on a curve. Think of it as a line. It's either a line, you've you either cross a line or you haven't. 
Sometimes we don't cross it, sometimes we stand on it. But until we're all the way over, we have not crossed it. In the same way, either you have surrendered your life to Jesus or you haven't, period. You've either received his salvation, his offer for forgiveness, or you haven't. And once again, I don't mean being, living a perfect life. I have so many inconsistencies in my life. I have so many sins I struggle with just like you. It's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is a life that looks to God first in everything. We don't think about what's best for us in our situations. How would I honor God? We don't think, what do I want to do? What would God have me to do? Because he is Lord of our life. That's why we pray to him. That's why we think about him. That's why we worry about what he would think and what he would want. That's why we actually read the Bible because we want to see what he says to us. And that's why we obey it. You either cross that line or you haven't. There's a great quote. And this applies to all of you who've grown up in the church. Pastor J.D. Greer said this once. He said, God has no grandchildren. I'm going to say it again. God has no grandchildren. What he's talking about is, it says in the Bible that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that God literally adopts you. He walks into the orphanage of this world and he says, boom, you are my son or you are my daughter. Far too many of us, we grow up in the church and we just kind of adopt our parents' faith. We go to church because they went to church. We serve because they serve. We give because they give. We say the right phrases because we learn them. But God has no grandchildren. Either we are a son or daughter of God or we are not, period. Have you stepped over that line? Is he Lord of your life? You know, one of the reasons that all these people were so shocked is because they weren't used to seeing the power of God poured out on individuals like this. They were used to seeing it poured out on an individual few. But there was a change here, something they had not seen before, where God was connecting with each person in a powerful way. It's the same today. His spirit wants to be poured out on each one of us. He wants relationship with on each one of us, not the person next to you or behind you or in front of you, the person worse than you or better than you, you. So I want you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter. And once you've been cut to the heart, you've accepted that grace, you've made me Lord of your life, I'm going to take my power, put it into you, that you are going to go change the lives of the people around you. You are going to give them a hope. You're going to give them a purpose, an identity and love that rises above all the crud of this world. That is what his Lord's calling for each and every one of us. That's what we'll see happen in the book of Acts. And as you look to him, that is what we'll see happening in your life.